there seems to be this pattern of if women are very low in fish intake or blood levels of DHA or omega-3s, then the intervention helps. But if they aren't low, they come in with good levels, they come in eating fish, then the intervention doesn't actually, it's not different than the placebo. And to me, that's that blood level thing. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hi, Dr. Harris. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, so I had your dad on recently, and that episode hasn't gone up yet, but it will before this one goes up. It was a, a great deep dive, as I'm sure you can imagine, into omega-3s and in particular how they affect cardiovascular and neurological health in adults. Mm -hmm. Today, I thought we could focus a little more on the maternal and infant 
periods and and the importance of omega threes in these life stages, uh-huh. which I know is an, an area of interest for you. Perhaps the the best kind of on ramp here is how you personally wound up studying nutrition and and I'm assuming as a as a kid and a teenager, your dad probably shared a lot of his work and and thoughts about nutrition at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I never really expected to do this. I think I think it was kind of a surprise to me. Um, but the mo- the biggest thing I remember about my dad's job growing up is that. It, he, we were able to travel a lot with him because in academia, everything's really international. And, um, and in the omega-3 world, there's a whole lot of connection to Norway and Scandinavia. Um, and so when I was a kid, we actually lived in Norway for six months while he studied with another scientist there. And that was um, an amazing experience, but it also was like, this is kind of an interesting lifestyle. Uh, that's very cool. I liked it. And then as I went through school, um, undergrad, I was at a liberal arts school and I studied biology and I really liked biology, but I did not want to be a medical doctor. I didn't want to like have life and death decisions on my hands, but I thought metabolism is interesting. Um, And my dad basically was like, well, metabolism is really close to nutrition. Nutritional biochem is metabolism. So... um, I wasn't really sure uh, because I didn't take, I took maybe one nutrition class in undergrad. They didn't have mm-hmm. anything upper level as a small school. Um, and so all I knew really was like kind of calories in, calories out type of nutrition. Um, and so I did apply to grad schools and I ended up going to the Pencil, Penn, Penn State, um, which was far away from where I was in South Dakota. I went to Pennsylvania. It's like, 12 hours or it's like 20 hours away driving and I didn't know anybody out there and I just went and I was like we'll just see if I really like this I'll know and if I don't I'll just be done (laughs) and I turned out I really really liked it um and I had a really great mentor Penny Chris Etherton she was very kind and had lots of interesting projects um and I really thought I just like loved my classes um and so Mm -hmm. it was a kind of backed into it um, a little bit and just explored and figured out like, oh, this is really interesting. Um, while I was at Penn State, I did my PhD in nutritional sciences running um, human clinical studies that were feeding studies, which was really interesting. And it wasn't an omega-3s at all. And then I also got my registered dietitian credentials. So I got the really clinical side of things, which mm-hmm. I really like. Um, and then after I did an internship, um, I did a postdoc in behavioral health, which was kind of going more towards the public health. How do we just make small changes on a big scale? Totally going away from biochemistry. And then I realized after about a year of that, I was like, I actually don't like this as much. I feel out of my depth. It is so, so many variables. It's way beyond nutrition. Um, so I decided to come back into nutrition. And I had worked for my dad's lab, which is called Omega Quant. Um, and th- they've been doing fatty acid testing for years. And I came back to it and I was like, um, I'm interested to, to try working here again um, and, and see if I like this. And when I came back on board at Omega Quant, they had just validated um, a breast milk fatty acid test. 
And they're like, well, we have, we're able to measure fatty acids in milk. So we're really interested in looking at maternal health. And I was like, okay, I've never done maternity or maternal health stuff. Um, I hadn't had kids yet. Um, but I just kind of started to dive in and it was really interesting. There's uh, heart diseases where a lot of our main data is, but I think the maternal piece is almost as strong as the cardiovascular piece. So from the milk DHA levels, as I was looking at that and trying to determine kind of cut points, I kept seeing that pregnancy is really where a lot of the big effects are. Um, and so the next thing we did was, well, let's look at what omega-3 levels in pregnancy mean, what kind of outcomes are there, what's the cut point. Um, and so that's really how I got there, kind of a long-winded answer, but I always kind of just do the next right thing and I didn't ever really have a full plan. Yeah, I think you you kind of uh, reeled that off quite nonchalantly, but uh, that's a that's a seriously comprehensive uh, education. <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 curious, and some people listening may not be familiar with Penny Chris Etherton, but she is a, a real giant in the field of nutrition science. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get much better than than sort of cutting your teeth under her supervision. Can you share what that was like? Yes. So for her to be, she is a giant in our field, but she is like a small, kind woman. She is just has a small demeanor, but she is, she's so kind. And she was able to do so much work and get so many students through her lab and through um, the graduate school without um, kind of having any academia um, ego, which I think is really, really good. And she, she, it was just a really healthy environment to, learn and make mistakes. And she's very human with everyone. Um, and so, yeah, she had a lab where we were doing um, controlled feeding studies, which is a really hard, high level way to do nutrition research. But we we're able to really see um, how to do that, that high level of nutrition research um, on all kinds of different areas of, of human health. But she really was deep into um, the cholesterol story and fats and fatty acids in the beginning of her career and throughout, but she's definitely branched out and done lots of other things too. Um, Cause my, my study was really focused on kind of whole grains, um, but other people were doing a lot of nut studies and, um, and different, there were some omega-3 studies, there were some cholesterol studies, but mostly she was, um, she was, she really, did her work well. She was very um, thorough in reviewing our work and giving really good feedback um, and just made it easy to um, want to do the next thing for her. It was like, I'm excited to do this study. And so much of it is you don't know what you're doing. So, so much of it is that human element of her just being um, kind enough to let you make mistakes or let you learn along the way, let you ask questions. Um, and then having that expertise to really guide you in the right way mm-hmm. while still letting you make some, some of your own decisions. But um, mm-hmm. it's very fun to go to conferences with her because they just, they know everybody and everybody just loves seeing her. <laughs> so, so you did your PhD in ho- looking at whole grains. Is that right? Yeah. Whole grains. And was- I, I know this might be kind of, 
a, a slight change in gears and, and going away from today's topic. But can you can you tell us a little bit of of, of kind of what you were interested in looking at in your PhD and what you found? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were really looking at in, at metabolic syndrome, uh, and my study was a as a follow-up study to a previous one where they, they're basically taking like the same diet and switching a refined grain product for a whole grain product. Um, and so that was the, it was, it's fairly simple, but there's still so many variables changing that it's really, um, gets tricky, but we were mostly focused on, on those metabolic syndrome characteristics of blood glucose and blood pressure and waist circumference. Um, and so we started to, I would say what we found was that there were some differences. There were some um, improvements in like overall metabolic syndrome scores on a whole grain versus a refined grain diet, but it was not super dramatic. And I would say part of that is the whole grains we were studying were still at the lo- same level of um, processing. So it wasn't like we were taking a, a whole, um, they weren't having like farro versus um, pasta. It was like whole grain pasta versus pasta. Um, and so that element always to me was like, that's that next step of kind of a less processed whole grain, but it was still interesting to do the processed ones. Cause that's what's kind of realistic. Um, and so it was, we did, we did resting metabolic rate. We did MRIs to look at visceral fat. Um, we did, all kinds of blood work. Um, and we found some, some interesting findings, but overall it was a a pretty small difference, I think, between the groups. Um, and which I think is probably kind of to be expected because all of the groups came onto a controlled feeding study from a free living diet without a run-in period. And so there's automatically a difference when you have someone feeding you and how you act and your behavior. And um, we were trying to do a a weight maintenance for the first part of the study and then weight loss at the last part. But it's very hard to keep people their weight up once you're controlling their diet. They're still getting like some people were taking like bags of lettuce home and trying to eat it. They couldn't eat all the food we were trying to give them to maintain weight. Um, And so that's something that uh, was a big learning experience for me is just like that, just the controlled feeding element is such a big variable. Um, and so, yeah, so we found whole grains did some interesting things. Um, a little bit of improvement in metabolic syndrome outcomes, but not wildly dramatically different. So it kind of sounds like weight loss was driving a lot of the the changes and that was independent mm-hmm. of the type of grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the key. It's hard to control that. And once you bump up all that fiber, it's really hard to get people to mm-hmm. eat enough to, <laughs> yeah. to be able to maintain that weight. But your point about different types of whole grains, that's also interesting because we kind of fall into this trap of just having umbrella terms but mm-hmm. there is likely a, a real difference between different types of whole grains, as you say, and, and the relative degree of processing between mm-hmm. them. It's super interesting. Yeah. You alluded uh, earlier to the, the kind of benefit uh, of, of having, the benefits of having your uh, dietetics training. Mm-hmm. And now as a, as a scientist, I'm curious as to 
how you feel that that benefits you in terms of nutrition science and thinking about experiments, conducting experiments and, and sort of coming to conclusions as well? Oh, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, to me, I think it just reinforces the humans that are in science, both mm. running the scientific studies and as participants and the human behaviors that, that people that change that really do kind of affect scientific outcomes and, and how study design is really trying to take away as many of those human um, elements as possible to really see like, is the intervention doing something? Um, and so as an RD, your training is working. It's really focused on the individual. It's focused on their behavior um, and their entire, it's just so much bigger than food when it comes to nutrition. It's, it's everything in their lifestyle that allows them um, to have the money to get the type of food they want, the skills to cook it. You know, it just, there's a lot of different variables, variables besides the nutrition. So getting that dietetic training um, really exposed me to all different kinds of ways you can practice nutrition. Um, but I think the bigger piece that I bring into being in research is that individual variability is real in studies, biologically, as well as the compliance issue. Um, and so people will tell you what you want to hear because they're trying to be good patients or participants, but um, they don't necessarily want to say that they've been not doing something according to plan. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can't, as a dietitian, if you don't know that, you can't help them, <laughs> which is a very human thing, I think, for us not to admit mm -hmm. we don't, we're not doing something right when we know we should do better. Mm. I do that. I'm, I'm behavior and knowledge are different things. Um, and, and then the same in research is that's why you take so many, you have so many different tests you do is to make sure you're trying to, um, decrease the amount of uh, differences between each participant in your study. So a controlled feeding study, you're giving them all your food every day, um, for three months. That's a huge amount of effort to just try and control that one piece. And still, you don't know what they're actually eating. Mm -hmm. You still don't, you know, they're not, there's another level of research, nutrition research where they're stuck in a room for a week or months or something like that. Like it's a whole nother mm -hmm. level. So I think the humanity, it lets me come at research findings and studies with a grain of salt. I'm never like, this is going to save everybody <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because it's just, it's just, um, we're way more complicated than that. Um, and so I think everything taken with a grain of salt um, is is what I've learned from mm -hmm. dietetics and working with humans. <laughs> yeah, and I guess those very, very controlled environments in kind of metabolic ward environments, as you say, kind of locking people away are very good for for controlling as many variables as possible, but then are perhaps not as generalizable in terms of oh, what happens in, in the real world in a sort of free living scenario. Mm -hmm. And every different kind of study design has a purpose, 100%. Like we might mm -hmm. kind of look down on dietary intake studies where you're asking people to recall what they've eaten over the last six months or the last three days. 
Um, but there, and there's a lot of air in there, but it's also like, you also can reach so many more people and that's a really big advantage. It's like the higher the quality of your study, as far as compliance and control goes, the smaller amount of people you have and the Mm -hmm. less realistic it is and less broad it is. And then the bigger, more broad it is usually lose that Mm -hmm. level of quality control because it's almost impossible. So, um, that kind of leads into omega-3 testing and how, Yeah. One of my favorite things it does is it shows like an individual biomarker response to a nutrient, which is not all that common to have a a really nice nutritional biomarker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, I want to talk about why that's important and how that can Mm -hmm. be potentially helpful in various studies. Uh, Mm -hmm. But let's take one step back and kind of assume that someone's jumping into this conversation, perhaps with very little background knowledge of omega-3s, perhaps they haven't listened to the episode that I did with your dad, Bill. What are omega-3s? What are the the kind of different types? Yes. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids are polyunsaturated fatty acids. They're a type of fat. They have, um, fats have a lot of carbons and they also can have different amounts of what we call double bonds. Um, and that if a, if a fat doesn't have any double bonds, it's really straight. If it has one double bond, it turns at that and it's, it starts to get, um, we call it the word, usually they call it kinky. It just can be like lots of different shapes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it always feels weird. Uh, and so <laughs> po- polyunsaturated fats have a lot are very long and they are lots of different shapes because they have a lot of different double bonds. So unsaturated means double bonds. Poly means many. Um, so monounsaturated only has one double bond. And olive oil is like your main um, mm-hmm. example of that. And the other thing, it it's structure and function. So in biology, the structure of something is really tells you about the function of it. And so a saturate versus a monounsaturate versus a polyunsaturate, they have different structures, so they have different functions in the body. And the... Mm, one of the most obvious ways you can tell the difference between these fats and that they are physically different is that uh, room temperature state. So butter having lots of saturated fat is solid at room temperature and anything that has unsaturation is liquid at room temperature. So that's kind of that fluidity idea is actually really important in the body too. So omega-3s are a type of polyunsaturated fat. Their first double bond is from the three carbons from the omega end. That's the technical reason it's called omega-3 or omega-6. Um, and those two types of fatty acids are kind of essential. Like our body can't put a double bond on that three position or the six position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes something essential because your body needs that for a lot of different purposes. And then it can make lots of different omega-3s and omega-6 fatty acids based on um, getting the parent omega-3 or omega-6 through the diet. So your body's still metabolizing and, and using these fats, but at the core, we do need to get it from the diet. So we go zoom in even more. The omega-3s, we have alpha-linolenic acid, which is the omega-3, the parent omega-3. It's found in plants. It's found in walnuts and flaxseed. Um, and that is one kind of omega-3. And then the other main ones are EPA and DHA. Those are the ones found in fish. We call them marine derived. They're really unique to fish, which I is 
fascinating because there are not a lot of nutrients that are so specific to a type of food group. And um, those two fatty acids are have a lot of carbons and a lot of double bonds, and they have been shown to be um, really important for health, for how our cells function. Um, and so we can make EPA and DHA from ALA, but it's our buddy, it's a pretty slow process. Um, and there's a lot of different things that can affect it. But we do know that when we eat fish or we eat EPA and DHA in a fish oil, the EPA and DHA in our body goes up. And it's a pretty direct relationship. And that's pretty rare. Um, a lot of times the body does takes whatever you give it and it makes whatever it needs. And for EPA and DHA, it seems like that connection, it's pretty direct between diet and what's in our blood. So um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's another long answer <laughs> to what are omega-3s. <laughs> no, that was great. And we'll, we'll save omega-6s potentially for the yeah. sort of end of this conversation if, if there's time. Uh, you mentioned there that omega-3s, um, there's research that has looked at the health benefits of omega-3s, ALA, DHA, and EPA. If we zoom in now on pregnancy, that sort of maternal mm -hmm. uh, period, what do we understand with regards to omega-3s and their importance during pregnancy? I'd love to kind of go through what we know and and how that's been established. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a big question. Um, I'd say I think 30, maybe even 40 years ago, um, this question, around, Dr. Olson um, in, I think it was Copenhagen, he started to look at the Faroe Islands, which is like a tiny island in the middle of the North Atlantic Sea or ocean. And um, so they didn't have much food besides fish and fatty fish. And EPA and DHA are really present in, in cold water fish. So they had very, very high levels of that. And then they were comparing um, that population to a, a typical Danish population and the pregnancies. And they found that um, the women on the island had much larger babies than the women who were in Denmark. And um, those women, they started to do, and that just kind of started the process. So they started to do research. Um, they found that their gestation was elongated. So they were having longer pregnancies on average than the Danish women were. And that would make sense. The, bigger ba the longer the baby has to grow in the womb, the bigger it should be. Um and so then they started to ask about fish intake and they saw that women who ate three or more times of uh, servings of fish a week had longer gestations than women who ate less than one serving or less or zero servings a week. Um, and so they keep like going down this path and they've this, this group, um, I don't know how to say it's, it's Sig, Sigford Olson. Um, they've published so much in this area. So they, they really started this, um, focus on kind of gestational length and just what is, which is a really typical thing to, to look at and measure in pregnancy. It's one of the most basic things you look at. And then there was also a turn where omega DHA specifically is very rich in the brain and in eyes. It's much, much richer than the rest of our body. And so um, they started to see that with premature babies coming out, they would have um, eye issues or brain development issues. Um, and especially if they came out and were put on a formula, it didn't have any DHA 
or arachidonic acid, which is an omega-6. Both really important. Um, so they started to do research on um, things like visual acuity and, and giving pregnant women doses of fish oil, so concentrated EPA and DHA from fish. And a lot of these studies happened in the Nordic countries as well, so they already had a pretty high level of intake, and then they, they really did some very high-dosing studies, um, like six grams a day during pregnancy, and they did it in some really high-risk pregnancies too. Um, and they found this pattern across the board um, even in these high-risk pregnancies that women who had low fish intake had a benefit from taking the fish oil, so a longer gestation or um, other types of, of pregnancy benefits. Um, but women who had high fish intake didn't see a difference if they were on the fish oil or the placebo. And there were some other study, other groups, uh, Bob uh, Gibson and Maria McCready's in Australia, they did some very big studies on postpartum depression um, because they started mm -hmm. to see some signals that women with very low fish intake or very low omega-3 status um, would have more issues with postpartum depression. And they did not see, when they did their big study on that, they didn't find an effect on postpartum depression, but they saw that there was a reduction in um, premature birth and early premature birth specifically, which is earlier than 34 weeks gestation. Mm -hmm. And the earlier you, you give birth, the more complications. So mm -hmm. a typical premature birth is 37 weeks. I mean, these are the cut points that a lot of this research uses there's no official cut point from what I can tell. It can go around a, a bump around a little bit. 40 weeks is term. I think that's, we can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so they found, they were looking at postpartum depression, didn't really see a big effect, but they found this effect in, uh, on premature birth rates. And then at the same time, a group in Kansas City, Susan Carlson's group, they were also doing a study, um, trying to think of what their primary outcome was, but they were doing a DHA outcome study, which I think had, um, they wanted to look long-term at like toddler, like the baby's development, cognition and, and all these different outcomes. And those outcomes are more mixed, but they found in the that study, a redu reduction in early preterm birth and a re reduction in, in NICU days for babies who were um, in women who had the fish oil supplement versus women who are on the placebo. So you kind of have all these different groups coming together. They're all starting, they're all kind of interested in different things. Um, but then it starts to come together that a really clear outcome is being able to elongate gestation, which means you have less preterm birth. And preterm birth is a huge issue. It's, it's, it has so many effects. The earlier baby comes out, the more it needs just to, just to get on the like normal track. It's incredible what our NICUs can do to catch babies up who have to be born that early. Um, but it's a huge effort. It's a huge amount of money and it's a huge amount of stress. So being able to not have preterm birth is desirable. So all of these started to come together and in 20, 19, I think. The group in Australia, um, the McCready's group, they published a Cochrane report, which is a really high-level meta-analysis that has a lot of rules to make sure you're not being biased. And they found really strong effects on omega-3 arms or fish intake arms, um, reducing risk for preterm birth. 
um, especially early preterm birth. And then that kind of, to me, for me, that was the paper that was like, okay, we need to make a DHA target for um, pregnancy. But um, all of these coming together, it's it's basically like the omega-3s are doing something to decrease, uh, to elongate birth, to decrease early contractions, <clears throat> something in that area. We can talk about potential mechanisms, but even preterm birth, the mechanism of that is like a little, mm. it's not clear. Um, but there's all these other side studies on um, visual acuity, on toddler cognition, on infant con- cognition, on um, heart rate variability, on, <clears throat> excuse me, all these other things that make sense. That there's a real, mm-hmm. connect. it's a brain or an eye um, connection typically, or an like a immune function or autonomic function um, focus. Um, but there's, there is another, besides the elongation of gestation, the other main finding that you see across several studies is that if they look at baseline, either blood levels of omega-3s or fish intake, there seems to be this pattern of if women are very low in fish intake or blood levels of DHA or omega-3s, then the intervention helps. But if they mm-hmm. aren't low, they come in with good levels, they come in eating fish, then the intervention doesn't actually, it's not different than the placebo. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that blood level thing. Um, and so that's kind of, there's so much more than that, but I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, it's a huge I've field. Got, it's just huge. I've got a few questions so we can perhaps dig into that. And I want to mm-hmm. c- make sure we emphasize what healthy blood levels look like versus mm-hmm. levels that may be less than optimal. Uh, you mentioned DHA quite a bit there and this sort of clear signal uh, of benefit with regards to period of gestation and the uh, weight of a baby. Mm-hmm. Is it just DHA? I do want to try and get into what mm-hmm. are some of the proposed mechanisms, but often we hear both DHA and EPA coming up in these conversations about omega-3s. When we're talking about pregnancy, are we more interested and focused on DHA or is there also some science looking at possible benefits of EPA as well? I'd say uh, it's probably more of the literature probably is using fish or fish oil, which always has EPA and DHA. Um, but there has there have been studies uh, using pure DHA. And I think a couple of reasons for that was they were able to get pure DHA um, m- uh, manufactured much earlier than pure EPA. Um, and that was primarily for infant formula because that is a whole nother area where they experimented mm-hmm. with infant formula for premature and term babies. Um, and the other thing is it's just, a, I think it's as simple as there's a ton of DHA in your brain and your eyes. And so there, it was, th- there have been animal studies where they completely eliminated um, omega-3, specifically DHA. And over time, there's just major dysfunction um, in brain and eye development. But the, the, their focus kind of became on DHA, um, especially in the studies that were focused on brain and eye outcomes. And then the reporting, if they reported blood levels, a lot of times they're only reporting DHA. And in the omega-3 index, um, which is a metric of EPA plus DHA, 
uh, in red blood cell membranes, the DHA portion is typically 85% of that. DHA seems to be much more structural in the body and EPA maybe is used up faster. Um, it might get metabolized a lot faster. And so there's just a lot more signals with DHA. And then the other thing is we have, um, we have some specific dietary recommendations for DHA alone and not for EPA. And that's, those are a lot of the reasons I started to look more specifically at DHA than the combination when I was trying to just see what the literature said. Partially, it's just what's been reported is just DHA a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And a stu- the big, really big studies that have recently been done just use pure DHA um, as their intervention. Mm-hmm. And what do you think some of those proposed or potential mechanisms may be where DHA is having an effect on gestation length? Yeah, so these are... These are hypotheses. <laughs> so this is just uh, what I've gathered. But um, so omega-3s and EPA and DHA have a lot of uh, metabolites that are really important in the, the beginning of pregnancy and, or in the beginning of um, labor. Um, so I think prostaglandin E, prostaglandin F2, um, and those are related both to DHA and EPA, as well as arachidonic acid, which is an omega-6, uh, also really important. Um, but there is, uh, those press, those molecules are incredibly important in the contraction, uh, starting the contraction of the uterus. And the uterus contracting is labor and delivery. Like that's how the baby gets squeezed out of the body. Um, so those signals starting to happen are related in some way to these fatty acids because they are made from these fatty acids. And just generally in anyone's body, when we have these fatty acids um, in our cell membranes and our tissues, the body takes them and metabolizes them into an, an amazing array of different kinds of metabolites, which are really potent. Um, many of them on the omega-3 side tend to be anti-inflammatory or pro-resolving. So after an inflammatory process happens, um, the body has to heal itself essentially from that process. And many of the omega-6s, their metabolites tend to be in that first part of the process that's more pro-inflammatory. And the omega-3s tend to have the ones that come and clean up afterwards. And so I think of preterm birth kind of as an inflammatory event. Like, um, there's been some research that shows uh, like a, a virus or a, um, having some kind of uh, virus can kick off early early uh, labor. Um, all of the risk factors for early preterm birth all point to higher stress. Um, and stress uh, adds more inflammation into your body. Um, and so, but they're very vague. They're like, being overweight, being underweight, being older, being too young. And then it's, and then, then it's just generally having like more stressful, um, lifestyles. So if stress or, um, inflammation or, or a virus, um, which obviously up, uh, kicks up inflammation, those two things kind of have an association with preterm birth. Um, that to me is, is kind of an, a little bit more of an inflammatory environment than you want. And then many people are very low in omega-3s in their body and their status. Um, and so 
I don't think it's just omega-3s happening, but I think it's one of the pieces that's um, when those are really depleted, then your body just starts to to not be able to fend off some of these uh, different challenges. Um, and then it just, they're intimately involved, their, their metabolites are so intimately involved in the actual contraction of the uterus, um, which is preterm, which is birth, <laughs> um, that... Uh, it, I think it's in that in that arena where it's more about um, inflammation than necessarily structure or fluidity of the uh, the ability of the uterus to stretch because <clears throat> we don't see that twins their gestation is affected by omega three status that stretch factor which is also a a trigger for birth is is not really related to the omega three status so. Um, yeah, so in my mind, it has a lot more to do with those prostaglandins and acosinoids mm-hmm. coming metabolites of these fatty acids. Something gets off, and I think inflammation is some kind of trigger. Yeah, that's fascinating about twins. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. 
Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. omega 3 status there a, a, a few times. Can we kind of quantify that? When you mm-hmm, say yeah. uh, a healthy status or an optimal status, what do you mean? And, and how could someone kind of check what their status is? Yeah. So this is, this is a big deal. It's not standardized. So this is something that I'm, um, I hope that the recent like research and push in this field can really help omega-3 testing get standardized. Um, so omega-3 status just means omega-3 levels in the body, but there are a bunch of different ways you could measure that. And it's not, it's not, you're not going to get the same answer across the board. So I'll just take at omega quant, we measure um, the omega-3 index and the omega-3 index was invented by my dad, Bill Harris and Clemens von Chackey, who's a cardiologist in Germany. And it was looking at a red blood cell membrane and seeing how much EPA and DHA is in that membrane because membranes like cell membranes are made up of fatty acids and there's lots of different kinds of fatty acids in there. We, we measure 24 different kinds of fatty acids and we'll take the EPA and DHA over the total and get a percent. So they found for heart disease that uh, having a 4% omega-3 index was a much higher risk than having an 8% omega-3 index for Really sudden cardiac death was one of, was the main outcome originally. Um, so 8% of your fat, fatty acids in your red blood cells as EPA and DHA seems to be a really healthy target. But if we then, um, that 8% can't be applied to a plasma phospholipid level or a total plasma level of omega threes. And a lot of different, um, labs will measure plasma levels. Um, and so their cut points are going to be coming from something else. Um, and it's, it's really confusing and it's a problem. It's, if we don't get this standardized, we won't be able to use omega-3 testing broadly to actually mm-hmm. help any of these conditions. Um, and so for the, for the pregnancy status, DHA levels, when we looked at it, we saw that women who had a DHA level just DHA of 5% in a red blood cell membrane were um, really at quite low risk of early preterm birth. So we tried to look at the literature to see um, what are the, what are the outcomes in pregnancy for early preterm birth as our outcome. And 5% kept showing up as, um, as the point where after that, if you get higher and higher levels, um, that preterm birth risk doesn't increase. It kind of, the mm-hmm. risk line kind of flattens out. Doesn't mean that being higher than 5% DHA doesn't have other benefits. Um, if you're at 5% DHA, you probably have at least an omega-3 index of six. But being having an omega-3 index of eight is probably just uh, even better for a lot of pregnant women. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to, we didn't have evidence that getting higher and higher was improving preterm birth outcomes. So we were just trying to keep focused on that outcome. Um, but below 5%, once you start going to 4% and 3%, the risk for early preterm birth was just very steep, very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so when we, it was really interesting because we proposed this 5% target for DHA. Um, and a couple of things like really kind of came together around this number. One was that uh, two or 300 milligrams of DHA a day is really that the recommended dose for pregnancy to have at least 200 extra of DHA, 300 including diet um, at the very base level. And we found in that that amount of intake, which is equivalent to about two servings of fish a week, which is the current recommendation for pregnant women and fish intake, um, that level is um, it's a, about equivalent to 5%. So if you're eating fish twice a week, you, it's, it's possible for you to be at 5%. Fish twice a week will not get you to an 8% omega-3 index. 8% omega-3 index is like a pescatarian diet or a one to two grams a day of fish oil. 5% DHA is two or three servings of fish a week or 300 milligrams of DHA a day. So that's a pretty big dis- difference. And as a dietitian, I think that's really important because if we came out and said every pregnant person needs to be on a gram of fish oil, which I think would be great, um, but that's that's a huge burden. <laughs> that's a lot of fish oil. It's very expensive, and there's just not evidence for it needing to be that high. So that three that five percent target had some um, some other rationale around it that had a dietary connection. And then in a recent study by Susan Carlson's group in Kansas City, they actually um, had a study where they did a 200 milligram DHA versus 1,000 milligrams of DHA a day with an outcome for preterm birth. Um, and they found an effect, an overall effect. But when they looked closer, they found that women who had an omega, a red blood cell DHA level of 4.8%, almost 5 that was a really important level. So they found that mm-hmm. women who came in above 4.8%, it didn't matter if they were in 200 or 1,000. Their, their preterm birth mm-hmm. risk was the same. Um, and it was, it was lower than the other group. The group coming in with a lower level, if they got 1,000 milligrams per day, their risk was half of the women who had 200 a day. Mm-hmm. So coming in with a low level, you really do need that higher rescue dose of 1,000 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. 200 is not going to do it if you're coming into pregnancy and you're already depleted. And so mm-hmm. we found like that 4.8% was so close to the five that we found where it really shows um, it's just that cut point where you're either replete or you really mm-hmm. need a higher dose. And that's where the testing during pregnancy could really be helpful because you're not going to recommend a thousand to everybody um, and it won't be appropriate for everybody and their, and their lifestyle. But 200, mm-hmm. 300, everybody should get that recommendation. Um, but it allows for some real uh, personalized nutrition counseling, in my opinion. Sure. That's really, really reassuring and some good targets in there. So 5%, if you're wanting to kind of reduce risk of preterm, 8% mm-hmm. to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease and kind of health benefits aside from, from mm-hmm. pregnancy. Can we go back? You made a point earlier. I just want to reiterate this. You you sort of established this point that these percentages we're talking about, these are specific to the omega-3 index because I do think a lot of people would be getting standard labs with different kind of omega-3 tests 
Can you uh-huh. possibly explain why we can't use these targets that you're talking about for more traditional omega-3 tests? Yes, absolutely. And that comes from another, this red blood cells are a really neat thing to have a biomarker in. It's So the omega-3 index or DH, omega-3 or, or red blood cell DHA, either of those are similar to HbA1c. So they are a, about a four month, um, four month, red blood cells live for about four months in most people. And that level of omega-3s or of blood sugar that's been in your body for the last four months is really shows up in the red blood cell. It's a, it's a stat, long-term status marker. Plasma is the other part of your blood. And plasma has a different function. It's when it uh, is high in omega threes, it's usually because you've eaten them a few hours ago and it's just gone through your GI tract and you've absorbed it. And now it's high in the plasma because it's getting carried around the body or it's going wherever it needs to go. Um, but it'll go down after it's been after like a peak absorption is like four hours and then it'll keep decreasing over the day. So, um, if you're measuring in plasma, it can work if you are maybe consistently taking a fish oil. Mm-hmm. Then you may consistently have this higher and higher level of plasma fatty acids. What the actual targets are in plasma would be completely different than a red blood cell. They might be using a concentration, mm-hmm. um, likely using a concentration if it's total plasma. They might be using, there's also plasma phospholipids. And so phospholipids, it's really like the red blood cell. The membrane of the red blood cell is phospholipid. That's how the fats are structured. Um, and it makes the outside of components in the blood uh, and in plasma. So it'd be like the walls of an LDL particle or tri- triglyceride particle. So that, that plasma phospholipid level is actually used in a lot of research because just fun fact about research is Usually when you're doing a study, you just save all the plasma when you're taking blood from people and you throw away the red blood cells. It's very typical um, because there's like what, it's just red blood cells. There's nothing interesting in that. All the proteins and all the fat levels are all in the plasma. Everything's in the plasma. The red blood cells, uh, I think it's just out of a complete, um, they're just not used as much. So we don't have as many studies saving them. So we don't have as much data. Um, so a lot of studies will use a plasma phospholipid because it has the same kind of um, longer term status marker as a red blood cell because they're both phospholipid measures. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, it still won't be that same scale of four and 8%. It'll be a different scale. It'd be like 3% is a good number. Um, mm-hmm. And so not only that, but like every lab uses slightly different methods. Um, we did do a kind of a round robin study with other research labs in the fatty acid world um, and did a comparison. And most of the lab, I think all the labs in that um, that study came back with very similar um, omega-3 levels when they measured the same sample. But those are research labs. They are not available to a normal clinician. Um, and so we were really the only clinician I think we were the only clinical lab involved in that. Um, and so we don't match. <laughs> not The labs aren't matching across the board. We're not measuring the same stuff. We don't have the same, we don't even measure the same fatty acids. There's more than 24 different kinds of fatty acids um, in, in red blood cells. Um, you can go 
you can, I mean, especially with the technology today, you can find all kinds of really specific fatty acids. Um, so we need to, I think, hopefully the research community can come together and say, at least in research, we're going to keep, we're going to measure these fatty acids in this blood, in, in red blood cells, um, or in plasma phospholipid. And we're going to report it this way because people also report it differently. They'll, they'll either do some, an omega-3 index is EPA and DHA. A uh, total omega-3s would be ALA, APA, DHA, DPA. Um, some people do EPA, DPA, DHA. It's, <laughs> there's no rhyme or reason. So, um, and they all are kind of singing the same song, but you don't have actual levels that you understand how to get to. So in almost every other outcome we look at, like HbA1c, there's a, there's a target, 5.7% is below that is, is considered normal. Um, but there it's, we don't have that in the omega-3 space um, because it's, it's a really complicated method. It, it's, it's hard. It's simple, but it's hard to do. It's not in plasma, requires different equipment than most, most labs have. Um, so it's a specialized uh, analysis, but it's not, it's been around for 30 or 40 years. It's the same type of analysis. Um, but it's just, it's got, it's got a lot of issues. Um, and so at OmegaQuant, our goal is to be as clear as possible with what our numbers mean. Uh, we do a lot of research. We work with a lot of research um, partners, academia uh, and pharma. And uh, we work with healthcare providers so that they can get numbers that actually do compare to these big research studies. Um, instead of just, you can get any omega-3 marker. If you do a pre-post and you take fish oil, you'll see lower and higher. You just won't have that connection to what am I actually shooting for? How much, mm-hmm. how high do my levels need to be? What, what makes sense? So mm-hmm. there's a lot to, of work to be done to get this universally standardized, but. Um, okay. for all of those reasons, <laughs> there's a big difference between omega-3 status and, um, a- across the board. So you really have to hmm. know what you're looking for. Sure. So the main point being for the listeners here is that these percentages we're talking about are from the omega-3 index, and that is giving you an idea of your average or typical intake is sort of less susceptible to volatility in your intake, Mm -hmm. which may show up on one of the other tests if you're not consistent with your omega-3 consumption. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have a a couple more questions here with regards to sort of optimal intake. You mentioned there 200 to 300 milligrams of DHA or a couple pieces of fatty fish being that sort of recommendation to reduce risk of preterm uh, infancy. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about kind of genetic variation in conversion of ALA to DHA and EPA. I've read uh, a few different takes on this. Uh, many people are talking about during pregnancy that that conversion gets ramped up a little bit and some people may convert more, some may convert less. Is it possible, do you feel, for some people without a direct source of DHA and EPA, if they're consuming Mm -hmm. adequate or optimal amounts of ALA to get to that 5% omega-3 index level? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, And as far as I know, 
the study in pregnant women has not been done um, to, to see like, can ALA get you there DHA wise, but it, maybe it has, I, I'm just not thinking of it. Um, so first, yes, estrogen increases that, that the enzymatic pathway to get to EPA and even DHA, which is really interesting to me. To me, that is another like biological sense, uh, biological sign that mm. these omega-3s are really important. Um, cause the body's ramping that up. Um, and so, when we say it ramps up that process, usually you're looking at a percent or less increase of the of DHA or EPA. Typically, what we can see when people take a lot of EPA or ALA, their EPA levels can increase and even their DPA levels can increase. And DPA is in between EPA and DHA on the, on the pathway. Um, but it's usually stopped at DHA. DHA usually doesn't move. Um, so we, we typically see the ALA can, could increase EPA, but not DHA. And so, um, but there's, there's a lot of people experimenting with different parts of the diet. Um, and I wouldn't say that it's like, it is an impossible thing for just, uh, for a, a total plant-based diet to reach 5% DHA. I just haven't seen it. And from what we've seen and the, in the kinds of diets that are kind of typical here in the U S at least, and Australia and Europe have a lot of research in this too. Um, typically it does take a DHA to, to see DHA move. Um, there's going to be different levels of DHA and that's at, at kind of baseline. So people's just normal diet, they're going to have a little bit of variety in, in DHA levels. Typically, that is really impacted by fish intake, but there's other things that also impact it. Um, we don't ever really see anything below 1% or 2% DHA mm. red blood cell. Um, and so there's always something there. But the I couldn't say yes or no. It's less likely. It would be much more difficult to get... DHA ramped up mm -hmm. from ALA um, compared to EPA. And it doesn't take a ton of DHA to get there. Um, and now they do have the algal DHA. So there is a vegan option mm -hmm. of DHA. Um, but as far as like just people's different genetic, the, the fads, genotypes, essentially, there's, I think you're usually able to see significant differences in very, very large data sets because they're very, very large data sets, but the clinical difference is not there. If, if it could be like 0.5% different between one genotype and another. So one, you might have an average of 4% DHA and the other one 3.5%. That's, mm -hmm. that's not really as clinically relevant as one or 2% different. Um, and so I think that's where it gets very confusing is that, yeah, we can see some of these differences in really big data sets across a lot of people, but they don't have that clinical relevance where we see in clinical trials, it really does take um, a decent amount of fish intake or a, a fish oil supplement um, to move levels quickly so that they can really be mm -hmm. boosted up during pregnancy. Um, most of these studies don't, people don't know they're pregnant until, <laughs> you know, 
pretty far into pregnancy sometimes. They're not recruited into studies usually until halfway through. And so if you're not mm-hmm. recruited into until halfway through, you need to have a pretty good dose to, to make a difference and see anything change. So some of it is just the mechanics of studying, you know, pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say I would bet on needing to t- get some kind of exogenous source of DHA, but there's research to be done here. Mm-hmm. And there are, People who are using, because of the estrogen effect, there's actually a chance. Without estrogen, I don't know if DHA will move at all. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's more of a, we just haven't seen it, I would say, mm-hmm. in, the, in the literature. Yeah, I think that's a, a kind of sensible way to approach it for the time being. I agree with mm-hmm. you that it, 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 the fact that conversion of ALA to EPA and DPA at least increases that sort of does, I guess, emphasize the importance of these fats potentially during pregnancy. But it does seem a little counterintuitive that that DHA doesn't budge much given the well, research findings with DHA and, and gestational period. DHA budges a little bit with estrogen. It doesn't budge mm-hmm. at all without it. That's what I would say. So I think there is, there is um, a little bit of a movement for DHA, but mm-hmm. typically it's not moved um, when you're doing kind of a short-term study. So that's another thing. That's a different, so a short-term studies, you know, you, you have to, it, it's just, it's tricky. But the other interesting parts that the, like the signals from the body that it's really wants DHA specifically is um, the placenta has preferen- like preferentially pulls DHA and arachidonic acid um, from the mom's uh, blood, from the mom's blood, it will pull DHA and arachidonic into the baby's bloodstream, um, so that babies will have higher levels of those two fatty acids compared to mom. If mom doesn't have a very, it is kind of a, a lower source. So there, the body, the baby's sucking those up, um, and also fat stores. So mom's fat stores of DHA over her whole life will be um, released a little bit. Um, to allow more DHA to get to, to baby because it is a really specific fatty acid and a really specific dietary. Uh, it's just in fish and it is so rich in the brain and the eyes um, that it's just like all systems go. Like wherever we can find DHA, we're going to get it there. So it's really interesting. You mentioned arachidonic acid a couple of times. I want to flag that. Let's put a pin in that and come back. I think arachidonic acid might need a better PR agent because uh, he or she does cop a bit of flack I see online yeah. from time to time. Um, right. But with regards to sort of optimal intake during pregnancy, you've kind of highlighted this couple of pieces of fatty fish a week or 200 to 300 milligrams if we're talking about gestational period. I'm curious, uh, so fish obviously contains both DHA and EPA. Now, when we're considering supplements and where you, you spoke about 200 to 300 milligrams, I think that was just DHA you were talking about. Just DHA. If someone's looking to find a supplement, perhaps they, they don't eat fish or they're not eating mm-hmm. it regularly, what would the, the kind of recommended dosage be and, and would there be an even split between DHA and EPA? Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of... Uh, kind of recommendations from different groups, but there aren't um, really strong ones from kind of our 
our medical community, I would say. It's more from the nutritional community. Um, but uh, the really like the lowest baseline, the lowest levels are 200 DHA supplemental on top of current intake. And for me, I would rather have both EPA and DHA. So I would just want to make sure whatever my supplement was had at least 200 DHA because now there are supplements with really different profiles of EPA versus DHA. And a lot of them are really high in EPA because there's a lot of cool stuff on that. Um, but so that's why it's important to make sure you're looking at it and you know you're getting 200 of DHA in that supplement at least. Um, but if it's a normal fish oil supplement, you're probably looking at a 500 milligram a day at least, maybe 600 of EPA and DHA. And that's another like dietitian note when you're looking for supplements, look on the back panel, look at the serving size, how many capsules is it? And then you add up EPA and DHA, or you just look at the DHA amount that's mm -hmm. individual. If it has them combined, I wouldn't get it. Don't look at total omega-3s. That doesn't matter. It does matter, but it really doesn't. What you're really looking at is EPA and DHA. Mm -hmm. And and if it says two capsules, that's for two capsules. So you can't take one and mm -hmm. think you're getting what yeah. you're getting on that bottle. So there's a lot of confusion about that. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point because total omega-3s, let's say, could say one gram. But then if you yeah. added up the EPA and the DHA, it's actually much less than one gram because there's there's mm -hmm. other... I guess, omega-3s that, that make that yeah. total amount up. I'm curious as to, and this might be going into the weeds, you can tell me if this is irrelevant, but I've seen some commentary around triglyceride DHA versus phospholipid. Is that something that people should consider when looking at a, a supplement? And I'm not even sure if they all mm -hmm. kind of call that out. Yeah, so I usually am, to me, the bigger difference is... Uh, and this is total like EPA and DHA is ethyl ester form versus triglyceride. Um, but I, the triglyceride and phospholipid DHA, I've seen in more of the like uh, brain aging Alzheimer's research and APOE. Um, and that the, because of phospholipids are kind of, um, I don't really understand it because I feel like, it's all about absorption and all the fats get cut off from their base anyway. And then they get re reincorporated into either triglyceride or phospholipid or whatever the body wants. Um, so I don't really understand why taking a phospholipid DHA versus triglyceride would change what happens once it's, once it's been absorbed. Um, and I, I haven't really seen, um, I haven't seen strong data, especially in the pregnancy world. I, don't, I haven't seen anything. I don't even know if you can get pure DHA phospho. I guess you probably can. I don't. Um, most of the pure DHA stuff is algal, which is triglyceride based. And that's what most of the research has been done on. But I could be missing something. Um, okay. In the general omega-3 space, the real difference usually is the ethyl ester forms are usually EPA and DHA. And those were the first high concentrate omega-3 supplements. They were the first pharmaceutical grade omega-3 supplements because they that was the first time they were actually able to um, break the omega-3s off of the triglycerides and just put um, an ester group, I believe, no alcohol group on it. So it's a much smaller package than having a triglyceride, 
which has a natural fish oil, only the middle, there's three fatty acids on a triglyceride and only one of them is an omega-3. Um, so that's why so many of the natural omega uh, fish oils have a much lower EPA and DHA content because only a third of the fat of the omega-3, a third of the fat can be omega-3. But then now we have a triglyceride form where they're able to put two or three omega-3s onto a triglyceride backbone. And there seems to be a big difference, can be a big difference between absorption. And that's the key is like mm -hmm. getting it into your body. Um, so the ethyl ester, if you're not taking it with food, you can, it can be very, very poorly absorbed in some people, not everybody, but enough people where it, it matters. And the triglyceride seems to be able to be absorbed by more people, um, maybe doesn't have as big of a food effect or a fat effect um, mm -hmm. on absorption. But the difference between phospholipids seem to be absorbed at least as well as triglycerides. So I kind of lump those together. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as like the, the mechanisms inside the body and the different form in the pill, I just don't really understand that next step of like, if it's not an absorption issue, I, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, so maybe, so you know, maybe safe, you can teach me. Would, well, would it be safe to say that most of the available omega-3 supplements on shelf over the counter are the triglyceride or phospholipid form? I think in Australia they are, but not in the U.S. Okay. The U.S. Right. I assume so you really it's ethylester. So you really need to look at the label then to to kind of understand whether you need to take it with food or not, or do you just, whatever you're taking, have it with food? That's your safest bet. This is the really fun part. They don't, there's no label requirements for the form of ethyl ester or triglyceride. Mm -hmm. um, if you're taking, um, usually the triglyceride forms in, a, in the U.S., will be advertised as a triglyceride form. It's like a front of package. It's not anything official. It's just like this, mm -hmm. it's marketing. And that's useful. If it doesn't say that and it's a high concentrate, I assume it's an ethyl ester. Most mm -hmm. ethyl ester products do not say it's an ethyl ester, as far as I know. Um, if it's a pharmaceutical grade, I think all of those are ethyl ester. Mm -hmm. Those are like four grams a day. So you end up getting enough in there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not clear. <laughs> sure. So as a, as a kind of uh, safety step, if you're having a supplement, it seems like a, a wise idea to, to do it with a meal. You mentioned uh, algal oil there. And, and of course, that's starting to, to pop up and becoming more available and more popular. Is is it just as effective as, as fish oil, DHA, and EPA in terms of changing omega-3 index? Yeah, it's really effective, okay. actually. Uh, and DHA is more powerful than EPA in changing the omega-3 index as well, just mm -hmm. in general. But it's, a, it's, it's really potent mm. and absorbable. Yeah, I wonder, I know this is not your area of primary research, but given how important omega-3s are, and all of your research into them, particularly during pregnancy and thinking about making these more available uh, within the food system to get omega-3 index up across a, an entire population. Have 
do you ever give any thought, I guess, to how that can be done in a kind of sustainable manner with 8 billion people and whether right. it's sustainable enough to do that through through fish and everyone eating two pieces of, mm-hmm. of fish a week or whether we need, you know, other options, be it algal or uh, additional mm-hmm. options to kind of work DHA and EPA into the food system? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's it's one of the reasons why... I'm kind of glad to see this, um, the effect on preterm birth happening at an earlier stage um, than an 8% omega-3 index because it feels more doable on a public health scale. Um, It seems like basically all the food we eat is at an unsustainable pace and fish is no no, uh, different. Um, But yeah, it's a... It's a major concern to, to well, like when you do the math, you're like every pregnant woman eating two servings of fish at least a week. Um, and what does that do to our, our fisheries? Um, but I would say that there is, um, there are a lot of smaller fish, which tend to be a little bit easier on the system. Um, and also, usually it's like the sardines and the herring and the stuff we aren't used to eating. At least I'm not. But if I, if I could get myself to like it, you can buy tins of them and they're easier Mm -hmm. to just get on your plate. Salmon of course is the big one. Um, and it's being farmed quite a bit, which has its own issues and pros and cons. Um, I can't be too, I'm, I'm fairly agnostic about like, there are so many different things people are considering with their food choices and, and their fish choices. And I don't want to add extra stress on that when it's, if it's a piece of farm salmon that can have a very high amount of EPA and DHA more than it can be more than wild. Um, but just because they give them so much fat in general. Um, so it's maybe not like the best as good of a profile, but I kind of just want to give people space to say, however, um, it works for you and your values and especially pregnant women understanding the fish issue with pregnant women where there's a lot of fear around it because of the, the mercury issue. Um, and many of the fish that we eat on a day to day basis have low levels of mercury. Um, where you would be able to eat fish daily and it would be fine. They've done studies where they've shown that children from women who've eaten fish um, in island countries, like the Seychelles, those children have excellent cognitive outcomes despite having higher omega-3 and higher mercury levels. Because often there is going to be mercury in the fish, um, but it's just not at a very high level. And so there's a lot of fear around fish in general. And so if that's happening, I'm like, just take a supplement. Don't force yourself to eat fish when you're pregnant because you can hardly make yourself eat any, make yourself eat anything you don't want when you're pregnant. Um, and the supplements are typically quite um, clean and don't have, they've been processed. They don't have uh, any contaminants. Um, they're just, well, it's kind of just confusing on what you need to get and how much you need. And sometimes it's hard to take supplements when you're pregnant. Sometimes it's just hard to get anything down. Um, so the, that mm-hmm. that's kind of a separate piece for pregnancy. That's just, there's, it just adds to the stress of making a food decision, which I feel we just in pregnancy need to 
try and de-stress as much as possible. And but if they're like, um, when it comes to like this sustainability of the food system, I think the I think fish is a great option. It gives you a lot more than just omega three. Um, and if you can eat those smaller versions or choose um, to to go with smaller fisheries or pl- or places that uh, can track the fish through the whole process. That's great. That, that at least gives you a little bit of confidence that you are supporting a, a, a local fishery or a smaller fishery or something that you think they're, they're doing it quote the right way. Um, but at the same time, all the fisheries are interested in having a fish source in the future. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's really like, it's a tricky decision for everybody because with everything around basically like climate change and our individual decisions, there's always this, you can get really stuck in what should I choose? (laughs) And there's already like, that doesn't even bring in cost and taste preference and how to cook it and how to store it. Um, And so for me, it's, it's like, get some seafood on your plate. I think it's a great variety. Um, Whether or not, uh, yeah, the sustainability question is definitely outside of the realm of my expertise. Um, I'm I'm also concerned about it, but I also think that um, that the the fish decision is it's one it's one of the pieces of a lot of different decisions you're making about one food. And so mm-hmm. I kind of go to my RD head of like that's a lot of pressure on one food decision. Um, and so I think. If you're open to having fish, I think that's really great. If you're not, supplements are also a great option. They both do a good job of raising omega-3 blood levels. Yeah, I think that's a fair position. And and it's almost a a different question for an individual versus a society, uh, a population. Mm -hmm. And being able to say, hey, here's what the science shows. There's clear benefits for DHA. Now, here's a sustainability piece. What do we do on an individual level that feels right for us? There's a few different options mm-hmm. there, fish, uh, fish oil or an algal oil supplement. Take mm-hmm. your pick, what feels right for you based on your circumstances. What do you have access to? What can you mm-hmm. afford is within your budget. And then mm-hmm. on a population level, getting serious about DHA and the science and realizing that index levels are low what are we going to do from a public health perspective and how will we do it responsibly without exploiting the environment mm-hmm. and, and fish, for mm-hmm. example? Yeah. So um, I think we're, we're kind of aligned there and, and, and I'm, I'm glad that there's a few options for people to kind of choose and, and land with what feels right for them. I'm curious as, as to uh, supplements, if someone was to, to choose a supplement, I think sometimes there's this idea with a lot of things in nutrition, when something's good, more equals better. And Uh I wonder, are there any uh, side effects or risks associated with, say, consuming too much of these long chain fatty acids? I've heard various people talking about different things, one of which Mm -hmm. that I see quite a bit is increased risk of bleeding. And and I think I've Mm -hmm. I've seen people talk about that potentially in the third trimester. Is there... Mm -hmm. Is there anything here that you think is kind of valuable for people to be aware of? Yeah, um, definitely. So I think what's interesting is like every nutrient has a deficiency state and a toxicity state. Uh, and so the same is true for omega-3s. There's a point where it's just too much. And 
the quote toxicity symptoms, even though the, they've never, never been truly defined and a, and a target points never been truly defined for that. Um, it really is kind of the, the excessive amount, um, the excess of the mechanism of action that you want to see. So better blood flow, reduced platelet clotting, um, improved circulation essentially is really good for most people. And then if you go too far, um, clotting time can decrease for sure, but typically clotting time will decrease, but not completely, um, be shut down. It's not like warfarin. Warfarin is much more dangerous than fish oil as far as like a, a bleeding risk. Um, and we've actually, my dad has, has actually written, kind of compiled a paper on bleeding risks in lots of different areas and operations and another outcomes and pregnancy is one of them. And from what I've seen, risk for severe bleeding events in pregnancy is not increased with high dose DHA, whatever we've tested it up to, at least six grams of fish oil a day, um, not necessarily EPA and DHA. It doesn't mean, and, and one of the studies I'm remembering, the fish oil group had technically like a greater milliliters of blood lost at delivery than the other groups, but it wasn't a significant bleeding event. It was just a little bit more blood was lost. Um, and so there's a difference there. Uh, and then across the board, we've not seen that significant bleeding events um, are related to high dose fish oil. Um, it's, but it is a slower clotting time. So you might notice in yourself um, that you have, you bleed more because you are bleeding more, but you, un, you do end up clotting eventually. Um, and so that's just kind of, that's part of the deal when you get, it's one of the good things about omega-3s. Um, so the other things with really, really high fish oil, it's, it's mostly anecdotal. Um, at this point, we have a upper limit set on ours as 12% omega-3 index for mm-hmm. you really don't need to go above 12%. And that's actually sort of arbitrary. We just don't have a lot of data above 12%. Um, but if you look at fish eating cultures like Japan, which is kind of our, our classic culture that we look at, most of those people based on their current diet where they're eating fish every day or most days, they can start out at a eight or 9% naturally. And then they'll often add omega-3s on top of it, or they'll do, they've done a study, a jealous study where they added omega-3s on top of that. And they were getting people up to 11, 12, 13, 14%. And they continued to see improvements in heart disease outcomes. Um, another kind of like side story on this that I just find so interesting is my brother used to be, um, stationed in Japan as a doctor with the Air Force. And, um, and his, he was in a small town and, um, he found that the local hospitals, um, the Japanese hospitals, when they, when someone came in with a, like a heart attack symptom, um, they would not immediately give warfarin or immediately give a, a blood thinner because they didn't need to because that was not the issue for most people there. They didn't have that clotting issue because they all had, a lot of other things happening, but one of the things could have been as a population, they're at a much higher, they're already basically all at that 8%. Um, so I, that anecdote always just sticks with me, but 
um, so that bleeding, it all comes back to that ble- bleeding piece. Um, and so, of course, you can, with the high dose supplements these days, you could, we could start seeing people really get up there. And at Omega Quant, we do see people who are 15, 16, 17% sometimes. Even the highest I think we've ever seen is 22%, which is higher than a dolphin. Um, and, but as far as we know, those individuals aren't having major issues, um, but we aren't necessarily tracking them. Um, so we don't, that's a, that's just a lack of data is what's that point where it's like, you've gone too far. (laughs) Um, but I, I think you could, I mean, you could get to a point where it's just like, um, the bleeding is, is really uncomfortable. Um, but for most of the studies that have been done, um, those severe bleeding events are not increased on the fish oil arm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of sense as to what dosage of DHA EPA would be required for the average person in, say, America or Australia to get to an omega-3 index of, say, 12%? And I guess second part of that okay. question, and of course, only if you mind sharing, but I'm curious mm-hmm. if you supplement and, and what kind of dosage you've chosen for yourself. Yeah. Um, so we did a paper with Rachel Walker from Penn State. Um, and we did ask that question of like, how, how much should we tell people to dose? And so we were able to take 14 studies where we had done the blood analysis and they had just given a standard supplement for, for whatever outcome. And so we we're able to get raw data from 14 different studies. Um, and we just uh, used a biostatistician and had him make a calculator. And, and so we could say at this, if we start at a 4%, how much do we need on average to get to 8%? And the 4 to 8% um, number that he found was actually different between a triglyceride and an ethyl ester form. That was, those two were giving such different numbers that it's two different equations. So the triglyceride number is about 1,450 milligrams of EPA and DHA a day which does kind of go with about a serving of oily fish a day. And a, a salmon serving can be about 1 to 1.5 grams of EPA and DHA. Um, and then for ethyl ester, it's 2.2 grams a day. And so it's quite a bit higher for the ethyl ester. And we think part of that higher dose is, is the absorbability um, across the board. But then in certain people, it is very dramatic how much they can absorb ethyl esters. Um, it's, but it's not everybody. So those are the two numbers to go from four to 8%. On average, the U S is about 5.5%. Um, so it's more closer to 1200 or a gram probably for most people. Um, if you want to, that's to get to 8%, to get to 12%, our data ran out at about three grams. We didn't have any studies that went above three grams in our calculator paper. So we don't have recommendations above, I think it's 3.2 grams. Um, but it should be three grams should be, un, I mean, that would put people above eight for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't usually rec- like we see 12% as kind of an upper limit where again, it's like, we don't know if there's much, it seems like you get most of the bang for your buck going from low to eight to 12%. Mm-hmm. Sure. And going from eight to t- 12 or 15, 
I don't know if the benefit, like the cost benefit ratio is there. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like more isn't always better. How much does it cost for you to supplement to get up to that point? Um, I would also say, so for some, and that's, I'm kind of speaking about the general public. There are certain, um, medical conditions that some people are using high dose, high dose fish oil to kind of treat themselves or treat symptoms. And those can be, that's a different question than mm. just generally getting to to 8%. Yeah, we we spoke about the reduce it trial with your your dad and and I think that was a 4 gram serve. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there 1.2 grams for the average person speaking, you know, very broadly to get up to about 8%. Just to be clear, that 1.2 grams is that active DHA and EPA or is that the total omega in that that dose? Specifically EPA and DHA. Gotcha. So okay. not total omega-3s. We had to take, uh, for our calculator, we took EPA and DHA from those supplements um, and put it into our database. So we always okay. operate off of EPA and DHA because there's so much variability. Like that's the only way we can reduce variability is to just like focus on those two. And we are aware that there are other omega-3s, specifically DPA, which are doing things are important. Um, but adding them into... Uh, on a practical level, EPA and DHA are the signals from Mm -hmm. fish and fish oil that are really potent and strong and doesn't add a whole lot as a signal or as a marker to include DPA in that, Mm -hmm. even though biologically it's very likely acting as well. Okay. And that brings us back to the point we made earlier about the importance of looking at DHA and EPA levels on the label rather than total uh, Mm omega-3s. One thing that, that we haven't asked you yet related to pregnancy is the the ideal time to get your omega-3 index up to say 5%. Are we talking about uh, a sort of protocol that a woman would start after she finds out, discovers that she's pregnant? Mm-hmm. Or is it is it kind of safe to assume that anyone who is of a childbearing age, even if not pregnant, should aim for kind of 5% as a baseline? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say the second. I would say um, it's kind. It's like folate a little bit, um, and in other ways, it's it's not. But ideally, everyone would go into conception at at least a five percent. I like thinking of it as kind of a baseline level for for being replete. It's not necessarily our optimal level. Um, so going in because that's where that that Carlson paper. They found that women coming in above 4.8% had a lower risk for preterm birth across the board than even the women getting a thousand milligrams, but they came in lower. So coming in, it's, it's not that hard to get to 5%. You don't have to take a thousand milligrams to get to 5%, but getting up there, getting your stores up seems to be really important. But I will say most of the studies have been done where, like I was saying before, they're not recruited into the study and starting supplementation till the second trimester, just because it's pregnant, like you mm-hmm. studying pregnant people is difficult. Um, and so in those studies, they found that providing omega-3s at that point um, does something. It matters. It changes outcomes. It changes the gestational length. And the other piece of that, the, the bio, biological piece is the third trimester is when the majority of the fat is being transferred to the baby. So that includes DHA. So that 
getting having DHA on board just in the second half of pregnancy is absolutely better than nothing. And that's where most of the studies have shown efficacy. Um, but those are going to typically be, again, like a higher dose at that point. At that point, you're probably going to want a thousand <laughs> uh, if you haven't really been doing anything at all before that. And again, that's where if we could test at that first mm-hmm. trimester or early in the second trimester and see where you're at. And if you're at 5%, then you keep doing what you're doing. You keep, mm-hmm. you shouldn't need to add on and add on and add on. I don't think it would hurt. I don't think it's necessary. But if you're low, that's where you really need to mm-hmm. get that dose up. And we would have, I mean, this is the way that, <laughs> that life works where it feels like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer where if we could just focus on the people who have low levels, that would do so much more for reducing preterm birth risk mm-hmm. than people who are coming in with okay levels, but then they bump them way up to like 8%. Um, they're probably not really at major risk for preterm birth because of DHA deficiency mm-hmm. in the first place. So it's really that that group that's coming in low that has no idea um, where the benefit is just, it's right. It's in that group. Mm -hmm. So would it kind of be safe to say, I mean, in an ideal world, you'd be able to quantify this with an omega-3 index for everyone and and understand where your baseline is at. But would Mm -hmm. it be fair to say if your baseline diet going into pregnancy hasn't included a lot of fish, hasn't included a fish oil supplement or an algal oil supplement, you might be coming from quite a low baseline. Mm -hmm. And in that circumstance, you may need more than 200 to 300 milligrams Mm -hmm. of DHA in order to get you to a a sort Mm of 5% um, index level. Yes. So um, we did a study with, or Cornell University ran a study where they were looking at choline actually, and that was their intervention, but they gave everybody 200 milligrams just standard and controlled the rest of the diet in pregnant women in the third trimester. And we were able to analyze some of their blood levels. And most of those pregnant women came in, I think in the 4% range. Mm. And then and it was a small study, but um, about 20 people, but they were about 4%. And with 200 milligrams, the average went up to 5%. That was actually in the lactating group. Um, actually, I think they came in at 5% and were up to 6% in the pregnancy group. Um mm. But if you don't eat fish, um, what we were seeing is that in, in non-pregnant women, those women came in at about four and they ended up above the 5% mark. So a non-pregnant person, if they want to increase their omega-3 levels over the course of four or six months, you can do two or 300 milligrams a day, which is kind of a typical prenatal pill. Um, or you can start adding fish into your diet with some regularity mm-hmm. and they need to be higher omega-3 fish. But you need to have a good amount of like half a year probably on a lower dose mm-hmm. to really build up to that. If you don't have a half a year, then you need to have a higher dose. You want to go for a mm-hmm. thousand um, plus fish or plus like two or if you want to two or three servings of fish, but take a, a higher dose supplement um, between 500 or a thousand or more if you want to. Um, of, of EPA plus DHA is, is fine for those numbers, but getting that before you're pregnant 
you can really ramp it up a little bit faster if you are giving a higher dose. But mm-hmm. that low dose over kind of a lot normal longer period of time works too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point. I guess if you just found out you're pregnant, you don't really have six months to slowly get your levels up to, to no. optimal. Uh, and and that's a point your dad actually made, and I think that's a valuable one, is if you have tested your omega-3 index and then you go and make some changes, be it supplements or food, it can take this three, four-month period in order to allow sufficient time to see the effects that that has on the red red blood cell membrane content? Yes. Yeah. Red blood cells turn over about every four months. And so that's kind of the time you want to give that dietary change um, to see that's, Mm -hmm. there's still some increase typically after four months, um, but that you kind of see your steady states. Then, you know, if I'm taking a thousand milligrams a day, that lands me at 7% omega-3 index, maybe. Mm -hmm. If you... Uh, and you're probably not going to go up from there. So then you can know, okay, if I actually want to get to eight, I do need to up my dose a little bit. That's where that's where the steady state's important because it gives you the information of like, I'm probably not going to go up anymore from here on this dose. And the dose mm-hmm. will really fairly closely match. Um, once you figure out what you need, uh, there are... Dose is really important, but there are other things that are affecting the omega-3 index that are somewhat unknown, but also we start to see this actually kind of in the athletic and athlete population where omega-3s can be depleted with over the course of a season um, with kind of that intense inflammatory burden of being in season. Um, It seems like it can be used up. So there's that Mm. aspect that could increase your needs a little bit or you know you're like supplementing at this level and it gets you here if you have some kind of event happen um, like pregnancy we do see in pregnancy the women's levels can go up and up and up and postpartum they drop like a rock and that's Mm -hmm. partially because of breast milk (laughs) it's going into their breast milk Um, so there's there are some patterns also that can interrupt Mm -hmm. that relationship between your supplementation dose and your level but for if you're kind of normal uh, status then should Mm -hmm. four months should show you what you need to know yeah that kind of emphasizes i guess keeping a track of what you're personally doing and then being able to objectively quantify where your levels are at over time and and you'll Mm -hmm. hopefully be able to determine the 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 right or specific right i'll put in quotation marks sort of protocol for for your (laughs) biology i'd like Mm -hmm. to to slide over here as we come to the end of of this to the the postnatal neonatal sort of infant uh, period i know that you've done some research and you mentioned before looking at the dha content of breast milk i'm interested in how important that is how important the dha content is in infant formula when it comes to sort of the the first four to six months where the baby is reliant on either of these as a sole source of nutrition yeah Good question. And I would say formula is not my expertise. I was really focused on breast milk literature. Um, But of what I know um, and what I saw, the the really striking studies that showed DHA and arachidonic acid are actually both really needed in 
formula, the more obvious outcomes come from the premature babies. Um, and part of it is they are uh, more fragile and their outcomes are, they're able to, to look at more dramatic outcomes. The more, the closer to term a baby is, the more robust it is. And I think the harder it is to show true differences between, um, between different types of formulas. Um, but I know that in, in Europe, they made a, a, they basically required DHA to be a part of, uh, infant formula. I d- pretty sure that didn't happen here in the US. Um, but there was kind of an uproar because they didn't require arachidonic acid as well. And there were some studies showing that high DHA without that accompanying arachidonic acid level in the formula was actually a worse outcome than a low DHA. Um, and both of those fatty acids are incredibly important in brain building. Um, and so I would say generally, I don't know. I mean, 0.32% DHA used to be kind of the, the level that was in formulas. I think it's higher now. Um, and breast milk, that's the worldwide average or it was, oh man, 10 years ago, probably when they did kind of a, an assessment. Um, and we found that 0.32% in breast milk was kind of that, that low cutoff for being replete as well. Um, DHA in breast milk, but the arachidonic levels in breast milk, those usually stay pretty steady at 0.6%. So they're usually higher than DHA anyway, but DHA can range from less, less than 0.1% to 1%. There's huge variability, but in formula, I think making sure that having both DHA and arachidonic together, um, that's the big takeaway that I have from that. I don't necessarily have as big of a message about mm-hmm. the dose in the formula. Um, and also that the effects are maybe more apparent in uh, premature babies versus term babies. Sure. So in order to achieve that kind of, I guess, minimum level of 0.32% of DHA in breast milk, Mm-hmm. What's what's the kind of protocol? Is the advice that we went over before in terms of consumption of fatty fish and or supplementation at those levels, is that sufficient to ensure this much DHA in breast milk? Yes. So this Cornell study I was talking about, they also did a lactation arm. So we actually were able to do the same thing um, where we just were able to look at breast milk and red blood cell levels um, in lactating women, taking 200 milligrams of DHA a day. Um, 200 was not enough to increase their red blood cell levels. It maintained their levels, but it increased their breast milk levels. So all of it was going into breast milk. And I would say you probably have higher needs of DHA during lactation, um, where it's at least 300. That's a very late at the very least. Uh, and part of that is as, I mean, growing a baby is a lot of energy, but creating milk is is a huge uh, drain. And as baby gets bigger and bigger, the needs get bigger and bigger. And the DHA um, levels in breast milk are even more tightly tied to current intake. Um, The stores aren't as being used as much. It it goes up and down a lot faster, like more like plasma than like a red blood cell. Um, And so I would say in, in lactation, I would, I would do it. I would have it. If it's at least 200 in pregnancy, it's at least 300 in um, lactation. 
but the needs appear to be higher in lactation to, mm-hmm. to also to replenish mom. Cause a lot of times <laughs> mom is depleted and needs to be restored. Mm-hmm. And so there's a higher level needed for mom's body. And that's a higher level level needed for like making breast milk with a, with DHA in it. And as we know, like the baby's brain is growing a lot during this time point and their whole body, everything in their body is still, um, needing a lot of nutrition. Um, and DHA is providing a, a really important nutrient for baby in that time. Um, so, so yeah, I would say DHA needs are higher in lactation than pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I know that you said you're, you're not a, an expert on infant formula, but I do often, and you have mentioned arachidonic acid a couple of times. And when, when I hear infant formula come up, I often see parents expressing concern about omega-6s. And linoleic mm-hmm. acid usually comes up, which is, mm-hmm. I think, soybean oil is, is often one of mm-hmm. the ingredients. And so I'm kind of curious uh, to hear from you. Do, do mothers need to be concerned at all by omega-6s in infant formula, given that breast milk contains omega-6s? Do they need to pay mm-hmm. attention to the label? Do they need to look at the omega-6 to three ratio? Is any of that important? Um, I would say, so linoleic acid and arachidonic acid are the main omega-6s, but they're quite different. And in the body, your linoleic, uh, having higher linoleic acid levels does not mean you have higher arachidonic acid levels. Arachidonic acid seems to have a much more metabolically, metabolically controlled level. So the body is making sure it has exactly as much arachidonic acid as it, as it needs. Um, and so increasing linoleic in the body or in the diet typically does not increase arachidonic. What the, one of the only things you can increase arachidonic acid by supplementing it. I don't know why you would do that. It's in meats and eggs primarily as a dietary source, but that is even as powerful as the metabolic control in the body. Um, so having a formula with linoleic acid does not mean it has arachidonic acid and they are two different fatty acids with two different functions. Um, and so I would say the arachidonic acid, something you want linoleic acid is it's usually that was the filler fat from what I understand. Like that was just, we needed a fat source that was, um, able to, to work within the formula. And that's, that's typically what they use, but I really don't have a lot of the, the data on this. If the omega three, uh, omega six, or if the omega six, omega three ratio is low, it's too, typically because there's not enough omega three in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's usually the area of concern. Um, but a lot of people, there's a, I mean, the omega-6, omega-3 debates are raging <laughs> in the nutrition community and there's still not really clear, um, agreement in the, in the scientific community. Um, and then it's also just in the public. It, it's a very confusing topic. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is they, they kind of work with each other. So when you increase your omega-3s in your body, when you increase your omega-3 index, typically your arachidonic acid goes down a little bit and your other long chain omega-6s go down. So there's, if they're kind of, (laughs) if when you change one, the other one changes a little bit too, it's hard to know which one is important to change because two things are changing at once. Um, And so that's one of, linoleic 
is not one that's affected by increasing your omega-3 index because it's it's 18 carbons, it's a shorter chain, um, typically. Um, but yeah, I don't really, I don't really want to be a f- too much into fear about it because I don't know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know enough about it. But I know like basic safety has been demonstrated with any formula sure. on the market. I would say, um, but as far as these fatty acid levels, it's it is. I is way beyond my depth <laughs> at this point, but um, I would just, I'm just focused on the the DHA and arachidonic being present. Sure. Okay. So that's, that's instructive to look at the label, make sure that both DHA and arachidonic acid are there and have been included in that formulation. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back to a point that you made earlier. I think you were mentioning an Australian uh, randomized controlled trial, if I remember correctly, that was looking at postnatal depression, but also some outcomes looking at uh, cognitive function in in young children. And yeah, I'm I'm interested. I think they followed up their study. Yeah, yeah. You you kind of said or alluded to the fact there was some conflicting findings there <laughs> with with regards to in, ensuring uh, you know adequate. DHA intake through pregnancy and while breastfeeding, do we know how this actually plays out in terms of the child's cognition as they get a bit older and their IQ? Yeah, there've been, I'd say it's a really mixed bag research-wise at this point. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of one of the reasons to me is that it's so hard to study childhood cognition. Like the things that researchers do to try to assess, (laughs) I mean, it's just such a difficult marker to, to uh, analyze. Um, So that to me introduces a ton of variability in this, Um, but there's definitely been follow. I think it was the domino study and they followed up over um, at least seven years. I think I remember was one of theirs. Um, and they wouldn't see any differences between the groups. Sometimes they'd see a difference on like one scale and then they wouldn't see anything in the next year. It's really kind of back and forth. It depends on how many people they actually can follow up with because that's a big deal. Like what part, who are the people that continue to follow up um, with a research study? It's a, that's not the same population as your original study. It's mm-hmm. a subset. Um, and so that's going to affect your outcomes. It also is tricky because it's like you're looking at what happened in pregnancy and then following out after out to like two years and five years and seven years. And it's like, you're not, there's also what happens in between for those seven years, what, what they've been eating. So um, mm-hmm. if they were getting omega-3 levels on these kids, then you could really look at, you know, the behavior scores and the omega-3 levels um, on a continual, on a continuous basis, which is usually where we do find effects. It's hard to find effects when you're just analyzing data based on assigned groups, because we know that there are, there can be major issues with compliance in studies. Mm-hmm. They're also, and that can be revealed if you test their blood levels, because blood levels are very, they're pretty regular. If you're giving people a good dose, it goes up. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't lie. Yeah, they don't tell fibs, people, I should say. Yes. And I don't think, I think people are trying to be good participants. They don't mm. want to 
they don't want to do a bad job, but that's why you test. And then you can take your blood results and you can look at um, outcomes based on what what um, blood levels were achieved. And so this actually happened in um, that St. McCready's group. They also uh, just ran a huge, the biggest study done on pregnant women. Um, and they published in 2019, I think. Um, and they gave 800 milligrams of DHA to one group and zero to the other group. And they found that they didn't see a difference uh, in preterm outcomes. Uh, it was over 5,000 women. This is just, it's so much bigger than any other study that was done. So um, it was quite a feat. And they, but when you look at the blood levels that were achieved in the group that took 800 milligrams, it was around 5% when it should have been probably 7% at least. And so there, and then the other group was around 4%, 4.5%. There was not a huge blood level difference on average between the two groups. So something mm-hmm. happened. There's a com- potentially a compliance issue and that would explain a non-effect so they did um, a secondary analysis <clears throat> based on baseline levels, and they found the same thing where women who were very low had uh, had an effect. They were uh, protected by having a higher dose of DHA, but if they were higher baseline levels, they, it didn't matter what um, group they were in. So, mm-hmm. but that's part of that whole issue of of compliance and research studies and outcomes. And if you're looking at outcomes years down the road, you really do need to be measuring blood levels mm-hmm. to have any idea of what's going on <laughs> omega-3 wise, in my opinion. Yeah. And it highlights a great point in terms of making some of the observational research that's done a little bit more robust. You know, mm-hmm. what Essentially that domino study, what you're talking about there, I'm not hundred percent familiar with it, but if I'm hearing correctly, it was a randomized controlled trial. Then people started free living, living. There's a whole lot of other variables. It's almost an observational study at that time. And how can yeah. you, how can you actually uh, more objectively understand the tissue levels of omega threes in these children that are undergoing these cognitive tests? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really good point. And I actually hope that these tissue biomarkers, we and, and we're already seeing it, are used <clears throat> more and more and more in observational research to to kind of support uh, the, the food frequency questionnaires and just make the whole study a little bit more uh, robust. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Especially because... It's, it's well established that you can do the um, fatty acid blood markers from a dried blood spot. So it's the collection is not an issue. You can send it to people. Um, and so it makes it accessible for any kind of research. To wrap this up, I think a, a sort of a high level summary might be useful for, for folks listening who are thinking, gosh, there was a lot of dosages and milligrams and DHA EPA thrown around in this conversation. I'm I'm of childbearing age or I'm pregnant. I just I just want to to hear a kind of very simple uh, list or protocol what I can walk away with and 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 implement in my life. Great question. Um, I think boringly following a lot of the recommendations is a great idea. Two servings of fish a week uh, before you get pregnant. I mean, that's really good for basically everybody. If you're not a fish eater, I would recommend 
at least uh, uh, two or 300 milligrams of DHA specifically. If you want to have fish oil, you're probably going to look at about 500 milligrams at least. And doing that, I mean, like with anything, doing things regularly, um, the consistency is everything. Um, and so if you're uh, pre-pregnancy, you can do that. If you're in pregnancy and you think, I definitely have not been eating fish or taking fish oil, um, I would look to get a higher dose of fish oil. I would maybe go for a thousand milligrams of EPA and DHA or a thousand milligrams of DHA, which usually is like a two or three gram dose of fish oil. Um, so it really depends where you are at in the process. But if you're coming into pregnancy um, and, and, and really want to bump your levels up in pregnancy and you're halfway through or something, um, you probably do need a higher dose. There shouldn't be any safety concerns at um, the thousand milligram DHA level. Um, and that, that was shown in these, these recent studies. And so, uh, finding that the product is, is not going to hurt and, um, it's going to be beneficial for a lot of, a lot of different aspects of the pregnancy. Um, and so that's what, that's what I would go with. Okay. Okay. And final question, if we were to kind of zoom out a little here and, and perhaps I'll ask you to put your registered dietitian hat on as opposed to the mega three researcher. Uh, we know that during pregnancy, there's a number of important nutrients and food groups, and I'm sure people could create a case for saying that pregnant women are not consuming enough fruits and vegetables or fiber, et cetera. Absolutely. I'm kind of just interested in, in overall, in addition to omega-3s, what are some of the other low-hanging fruit, the parts of just overall nutrition that you think pregnant women should focus on a little bit to, to ensure they are uh, achieving nutritional adequacy or uh, an optimal kind of nutrient mm -hmm. status going through that period? This is a really great and tricky question because this is a double-edged sword. <laughs> um, I think a well-balanced diet of lots of fruits, vegetables, kind of whole foods, whole grains, um, I think some amount of meats provides some really important nutrients like omega-3s and a fish um, and meat. Omega-3, vitamin D and B12 are all, and choline are all present in fish. Choline's, those, those four are actually really important in pregnancy. Um, D, B12 and choline are found in other things um, besides fish and omega-3s are kind of specific, but um I would say I'm not uh, as broad as I could be, but I have learned more about the vitamin D and choline um, mm -hmm. importance during pregnancy. And choline and omega-3 actually have a really um, kind of integrated uh, um, metabolism, especially during pregnancy. Um, but generally, it's a well-balanced diet should provide those things. Um, having, unfortunately, prenatal supplements don't necessarily include choline or mm -hmm. omega-3s. And so that's why those two kind of jump out at me is they aren't kind of in the, they're not the folic acid mm -hmm. that is, is present in a lot of the already pretty ubiquitous as an option. Um, and so, yeah, 
the double-edged sword piece is you can drive yourself crazy thinking about like, oh, if I don't get the optimal nutrient, I'm going to damage my baby forever. Not true. (laughs) These, our bodies are very resilient. They are um, going to do everything they can to make baby as well as they can. Um, And it's not a perfect world, so it won't always be perfect. But I have a real, um, it's really hard for me to really to talk about this without thinking about that other side of it is if you didn't think you got enough of these nutrients, blaming yourself for something that happened in your pregnancy. When these are just like, they're part of the story. They're part of the picture. They're not the whole picture. Um, Try and do your best, but also it's... (laughs) It's bigger than this. It's more complicated than this. And um, it's not like you won't be uh, permanently damaging your child if you don't get enough choline necessarily. But there are things we've seen biologically that really are helpful. Um, and and like for the butt, for DHA, we see your body will release as much DHA as possible to get to baby. So um, there's redundancy for a lot of this stuff. Um, but that on the same note, does not mean that getting enough of these things through our diet, through through extra supplemental nutrition, doesn't help us feel better in the process, doesn't help the process go a little bit easier. So I can never give a straight answer, but that <laughs> I just know that um, I felt that when I was pregnant is that mm. overwhelming stress about all the different nutrients that I may or may not be getting enough of. It was just, and sometimes that stress exactly what we don't need. So mm-hmm. calm down. You're doing great. Try and eat a lot of different kinds of good whole foods um, and and talk to your doctor about it. I love it. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Harris. This has been super informative and I really appreciate that piece of perspective there at the end. I think that's an important reminder and you really did put it beautifully. So thank you for that. If folks listening would like to get in touch with you, what's the the best way for them to do so? Um, I am, um, I'm through Omega Quant. Most of my presence is through our website and through, um, we do a little talk, a little webinar with my dad and I called Omega Matters. Um, I'm available to be contacted through our website, I believe, Um, just doing info at Omega Quant and it'll get shuttled to me. And otherwise, I don't have, I think I'm on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I'm not really active professionally on social media. Otherwise, I try to keep my sanity. Um, but but yeah, you'll, you can contact me through either LinkedIn or the Omega Quant website. Okay, great. I'll put the, the links to those in the show notes. And yes, I agree. Social media can sometimes not be... <laughs> I'll be okay. uh, that great. <laughs> um, I appreciate you taking. Yes, yes. It's there's a lot of good stuff. To, I do have learned a ton through through people who are mm-hmm. keeping up with research on social media. So I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> it's got it. It's got its good and bad parts. Uh, yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today to to educate us, and I hope that we can continue this conversation down the line. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. This was fun. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. 
If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.